Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. What a what a pleasant time of the week this always is. It's just <laughs> great to see you all. And you guys, and you guys. Max, what do you got for us this week? Uh, this week on the show is Tejal Rao. She is, well, she has a couple different jobs. She works at the New York Times, and she writes about food. She is... Uh, a columnist for the New York Times Magazine. She also writes features for the magazine about food, uh, but she's a critic, a restaurant critic. She's the California restaurant critic, which was a uh, job that did not exist at the New York Times until they created it for her. And uh, so we talked about how you wear all those different hats. And then we talked a lot about what it's like to be a restaurant critic during a global pandemic when uh, restaurants are... are uh, struggling in the way that they are. Uh, so that's where we started. And then, and then we went off in all kinds of directions and, uh, it was a real pleasure to talk to her. If you want to start somewhere and go out in a bunch of different directions, do it with an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make it so easy. I set one up this week. Can you believe it? I haven't said that for a couple of years cause I've been mostly letting them ride, but I set a new one up. I did it with MailChimp. I thank them for their sponsorship of the show. Uh, now here's Max with Tejal Rao. Hey, Tejal. Hi, Max. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. You and I have talked before occasionally, but uh, never at the length that I plan to talk to you now. Hours and hours. Yeah, this is going to be, I don't know, I don't even know what time it is in the West Coast. I can't do that kind of math, but you should just prepare. We're going to be here for a long time because <laughs> I have a lot of questions for you. I don't know very much about what it means to be a restaurant critic, but even I, an uninformed person, could surmise that right now is a strange time to be a restaurant critic. And I, would, I am very interested in how you got to this place that you are at. You have written some incredible features that I want to talk to you about. But I, I was wondering if we could start with what your life is like right now as the New York Times food critic in California during a global pandemic in which restaurants are closed, suffering, fighting for their lives. 
What is your job right now? The job is not clear to me what it is. <laughs> it keeps changing, and which is fine. I feel really lucky to have a job right now. I, I'm mostly in my car. I'm in my car all the time, and I'm either driving to a restaurant, driving to someone's house to pick up food I ordered on Instagram, just driving around, poking my nose through windows. Like it, it's a, I feel like I don't really understand everything that's going on or what, how I should be covering it. So I'm approaching it differently with every story that I do. I've written a little bit about like policy, about um, specific restaurants that are somehow making it work right now. I've written about the sort of ethical quandary of delivery, just everything I can think of that maybe readers are wondering about, readers who would normally be going to restaurants. But the real answer is I, I don't know. I, and every week is kind of different. Do you feel some responsibility to be part of helping restaurants in California survive? I mean, I probably shouldn't feel that, but yeah, I, I do I do feel it a little bit because it's not just the restaurants, it's not just these spaces and like the delicious food or, you know, it's all these people who are out of work. It's like workers, you know, and I'm not a representative for any of them. You know, I interview people and try to clarify what's going on, but I I do feel some sense of responsibility. And I also know that I'm not really supposed to. How did you become a food writer? Like my first experience of you is you're writing in the Village Voice. And I did some sleuthing on the internet and I couldn't find out a lot about how you got there. How'd you get there? <laughs> okay, so I did do a bunch of freelance writing before I got a full-time job at the Village Voice, but it was mostly stuff for free. Like, do you remember The Atlantic had a food blog for a little while? And so I, I wrote some things for them, unpaid. And then Gourmet, when it was still around, they had a really great blog or website I wrote for them. Time Out, like those little 100-word pieces about how much I love canned sake or whatever. I did a few <laughs> of those. Um, or like what to cook with shad roe. And that that was like five years I was doing that. And I was also cooking. I was hosting a supper club in my apartment to make rent. So I would do it two or three times a month, depending on how much money I had to make to make up the fact that the writing didn't pay at all or very little. Um, and then I was also copy editing and picking up translation, like French to English, English to French translation gigs on Craigslist. So all, all this stuff. How does the economics of a supper club work? Uh, well, I didn't have, maybe this was like a little bit before supper clubs became, you know, they would have sponsors, like liquor sponsors and all that kind of stuff. I didn't have that. I would just spend money on groceries and then cook for about 25 people. What would you cook? Sometimes it was really, really fancy kind of um, copying stuff from fine dining. Like I used to work in kitchens. I used to work in restaurant kitchens. So I would pull things I loved from menus I'd worked on. And then sometimes it was just like fried chicken with biscuits and fixings and all kinds of stuff. And my apartment was just one giant table across the whole thing. <laughs> and 
it was like friends coming. How would people find out about it? Yeah, it was friends. Like I emailed friends and said, would you come? Would you pay $30 a person if I did this? And then you could join if you emailed us to make a reservation. It was my partner and me. And um, so it was friends and friends of friends. And when you were doing that and writing these sort of blog posts for Gourmet and The Atlantic, like what was, uh, what was your ambition then? What did you want to be doing? I wanted to be writing. I wanted to be writing fiction. I wanted to be writing anything, really. I didn't know that there was a path to journalism. Like, I think there are things you were supposed to do, like get an internship or apply for a fellowship, all these things. I didn't really know I could do that. I was just pitching, pitching really badly, too. (laughs) Why do you say badly? You know those pitches that it's like, I'm really excited about X. (laughs) And the editor's like, who the fuck are you? Why? (laughs) I don't care that this thing is exciting to you. Like, that's not a pitch, you know? Um, but that's definitely how I pitched. And you wanted to be doing any kind of writing? Were you focused on food? I was focused on food just because food was the only thing I knew anything about. And I worked with food. So it just seemed like a good way in. And so you're writing these posts. You're maybe somehow getting like, I'm excited about X pitches accepted. <laughs> and then I assume you started landing some pieces at The Voice? No, I hadn't written for The Voice at all. The job was posted on Media Bistro or some one of those sites that I would like constantly scroll through. The job was posted and I applied and I think they had narrowed it down to a few people and they they asked me to do a fake review of a not a fake review but to go and do a, a like a, a sample. Yeah, a sample review. So it was they, like a review test. Yeah, it was <laughs> exactly. That's what they call it, a review test and then uh come in for an interview and I did that. And I guess they read some of the stuff that I'd written before. Um, And I got the job, which is very, I feel really lucky. (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. I mean, independent of like, uh, clearly you're very good at it. Like, I spent a little bit of time in all weeklies. Like, they never just give people jobs. They always put them through the ringer beforehand. Yeah. And you hadn't done much reviewing at that point, right? I hadn't done any reviewing. I mean, I'd written pieces for The Atlantic that maybe would read like a restaurant review, but they weren't. Well, how'd you figure out how to do it? I don't, I don't know. I really (laughs) don't know. It was, I do think like the village voice was, it was like my equivalent of journalism school was the village voice. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the first time where I had the same editor every week. So I think that is how I learned to do stuff. Like I wrote what I wanted and I started to get more confident when you started getting that confidence that you're talking about, like, how did that manifest? What did that, what did that look like for you? Um, I don't know. I don't think I have it anymore too. I think I just like had it that one year and then it went away. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Like I, I wish I was confident in the way that I was when I had just started writing, but now I'm not. What was the thing that was there for that brief period of time? How would you describe Maybe it? Maybe like naivety. I, I don't know. I, I Did you feel like you knew what you were doing? No, but it didn't bother me, right? And now I think about everything so much more. <laughs> it's painful. I feel like that's inverted from how I normally understand these things to go. You mean usually writers get more confident as they get older? Or more experienced. Yeah, I think so. Maybe I'm 
romanticizing that time. You know, it was just one year at the Village Voice. I left in like a very messy way. I couldn't hold down a job after that for a little while. I was like an editor at Sever for six months. I was a writer at Tasting Table, which was this email newsletter for six months. Like I couldn't figure things out after that. So I've romanticized that period of time. You don't have to answer if you don't want to, but what was the messy way in which you left? Oh, the Village Voice fired a bunch of longtime staffers, including people who I considered like my mentors or, you know, people who were really, really important to me. And I left in protest because the the Voice's sort of PR arm, they put out a press release that kind of suggested, I should go back a bit. I That first year, I won this award for my writing that... Um, a James Beard Award. Yeah, I won. Yeah, I won a James Beard Award, and um, it was very exciting for The Voice, I guess. And they framed, they wrote this press release in a way that was like, "We're getting rid of all these people, and like this person is our new talent, the new person." They just, I felt like I was being used in a way that was really gross, and um, I left. Was it a hard call to leave? No. I mean, not at the t- no. It, it wasn't hard. I was I was so angry and um, and and also maybe this goes back to like feeling confident at that time. I was like, I'll find something else. I've been I've freelanced for so long. I can I know how to cook. I know how to copy edit. Like I can do other stuff. This doesn't have to be the thing that I do. It was an emotional decision, but I think it was you know the right decision. But the immediate aftermath of it was kind of tricky. Yeah, it took me like a year to find work again, basically. <laughs> so what what brought you out of that next period? Like, uh, you know, six months here, six months there, and then you landed at Bloomberg, right? Yeah, I went to Bloomberg, which was uh, Chris Rouser was starting. It was called Bloomberg Luxury, the Bloomberg Luxury team. And he was offering a critic job again, which seems so exciting. And they had the budget to sort of really do it properly. I mean, it's Bloomberg luxury. Yeah, it it was so different, (laughs) so different from The Voice. Um, They'd say, please go to Tokyo for three days and do this story. Or can you go to Buenos Aires next weekend to try this drink? Like it was just, it was really wild. Was it fun? It was, it was really fun. Yeah. (laughs) And then you ended up at the Times like a year later and... I've never really talked to you about this before, but it kind of feels to me like you have a bunch of different jobs there. You're a columnist in the magazine. You're the restaurant critic in California. You were doing a lot of reporting before you went to California. You're also writing features. Is there connective tissue between those different jobs, those different kinds of writing? Like, is there some larger story you're trying to tell or question you're trying to answer I I guess I'm asking is like uh, how do you think about your work well I don't think of I don't think of like the body of work I only think about the thing I'm working on right now maybe there's unconscious stuff happening and I think like everyone who writes is sort of their brains making these connections between the pieces they've written and the research they're doing now and the research they did six months ago or whatever but I'm not aware of it you know, I, I feel very selfish saying this, but I'm usually guided by what I'm 
excited about right now. So sometimes that's someone who's making beef patties and, you know, has launched a business in the middle of the pandemic and is figuring it out. Or um, sometimes that's how my relationship with cars has changed in the last year. Like, it's just, um, it's not very strategic is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not strategic at all. It probably should be. I should be thinking about the space I get to take up and the stories I get to tell in a in a in a more um, holistic way. Uh, but I but I don't. Well, I'm going to try and get you to think about that. Okay. Good luck. Even if there's no actual through line, <laughs> I'm going to propose some and see what you think of them because, you know, I just went back and read a lot of writing of yours over the last couple of days, like back to back to back, and I do think there are themes in what excites you at the very least. And one of them, I think, is that they are often stories that I don't think I would have read previously in the New York Times. They're from parts of the food world that are not just in the Times. I think across food writing are not often covered. Food carts and stories about restaurant workers, not about the person whose name is on the marquee. Stories about like amateur cooks with cult classic cookbooks that otherwise would have gone unwritten about maybe. And I wonder whether that is conscious for you or whether that just happens to be what you're interested in and other people aren't. I do like, I always like what other people might consider a small story. You know? um, What do you mean by that? Like not the story that an editor immediately gets excited about By small story, I mean not the story that's immediately pleasing to editors. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, like a, a a story that doesn't immediately seem like a feature. Mm-hmm. Where someone needs to be convinced it deserves space. I'm usually drawn to stories like that. Do you have a theory about why that is? No. <laughs> do you, Do you, Max? <laughs> I have a theory about why you're drawn to those? Yeah. I think what I'm asking is... And both things can be true, right? But is there an element of politics in the like broadest sense of the term about covering those smaller stories that I think are not often covered in the industry in which you work? You know what I mean? Like, is it strictly that that's what you are drawn to or is part of the reason that you are drawn to those stories that they tend to not get as much coverage as big fancy chefs at big fancy restaurants. Yeah, yeah, I think that definitely is part of it. I'm really aware writing for the New York Times that I'm part of this like larger, very complicated ecosystem and there are writers covering hard news and there are writers doing investigations that are taking months and writers covering like agricultural policy and because of that it means I can write about not, I don't want to say anything, but you know, it means that there's space for whatever it is I feel like writing about in the food world. And when do you know whether or not like beef patties are a story? Or how do you know that that amateur cookbook is a thing that you want to spend your time with? Like, you could write about anything. So how do you know what it is you want to write about? 
I think sometimes it's just that I can't stop thinking about a thing or I start researching it and it does seem like there's a story, but there's always a story. It's really just, are you going to give it attention and time or are you going to leave it and give your attention and time to something else? Like, of course, beef patties are a story, you know? Anything is a story. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. One of the reasons I want to talk to you is because, you know, you've got this column in the magazine that's pretty personal or often is personal. Mm-hmm. There are restaurant reviews or there were restaurant reviews and now there's something that's a kind of hybrid of restaurant reviews and reporting. And then you've also written these features. I got to make sure that we talk about the Kit Kat story, but there are these long reported features as well. And I'm interested in the process there, like whether you feel like those are different parts of your brain or is it all the same thing? Like it's a lot of, it's a lot of hats to be wearing at once. It feels like. It does feel like all the same thing to me when I'm, when I'm working, but it's also like a different team. You know, my editor at the magazine is a different editor. I have a recipe editor for that column. I have to file the recipe first, which means 
it's like a different neural pathway because I, I don't start with the story. I start with the recipe. So I think like the process itself influences some of the decisions I make, but in ways I don't completely understand. But they all feel like part of the same like uh, project to you. It's not like, okay, from noon to 5 p.m. I'm going to be like a restaurant critic. And then tomorrow from 10 to 1, I'll be working on a recipe. Oh, I wish I was that organized. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It all just kind of blends together. Yeah. Do you see themes between the work in those various realms for you? Like, is there a connection between, you know, the like explosion of flavors of Kit Kat bars in Japan and your love of oysters? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, you've just read all these pieces like together. So yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. you're seeing things that I don't see. I just like read the book of Tejal, you know? <laughs> That's so embarrassing. <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes I recognize patterns and, you know, it can feel like a. there's a lot of cliches in food writing and I try to avoid them, but I think sometimes I employ them without realizing it. You know, like there's certain food stories that get told and retold and retold. Like if you're an immigrant kid who had a lunchbox moment, that's like one genre of food. There's all these things. And then there's the oysters and love and like aphrodisiacs. Is it so? And with that column, I remember thinking, oh, I want to, I really want to write about oysters and love in a way that's not gross. <laughs> <laughs> like how do, how do I do that kind of column without using any of the sort of aphrodisiac-y cliches that yeah. are super disgusting? So sometimes I'm really aware and writing against that and sometimes I'm not. I'm glad that you brought up food cliches because that was another thing I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> Some amount of food writing is like... Um, so adjective laden that I don't know what people are talking about. But I love adjectives. No adjectives. I'm not, I'm not anti-adjective. I'm saying that there's like a genre of food writing in which they're piled on so heavily that like to totally bust this metaphor, like you can't taste the food under all the sauce. You know what I mean? Like I, just, I like don't, nice. I, I don't know what they're, uh, I don't know what they're serving, you know? <laughs> And I, it feels fussy to me is how it feels. You know what I mean? It feels like fussy right around. And that's not there in your work. And I wonder how hard, because like, I love adjectives too. There's only so many of them out there. And True. that feels like a challenge to me to find unique ways to describe umami, you know, like to describe similar textures or something. Like how do you, uh, how do you do that? Well, I try and... If it's a restaurant review, there are going to be a couple of paragraphs at least about the food itself. And I try to have descriptions of food that double as like maybe the words are connoting something else at the same time so that you don't have to read too much about the food so it doesn't get boring but also like text, it's not just about taste, it's about texture and emotion and all the other things that you feel when you're eating. Like a restaurant review is not just about what's on the plate. I mean, there's the deliciousness, hopefully, but maybe there's like the technique, the technical brilliance, the way a dish references a tradition, which could be a cultural tradition or something else. 
the aesthetics, the style, like there's so many things. If it's a tasting menu, there's, you know, when you're walking around a museum and like the painting you see in the first room informs the way you see the painting in the next room, just because you saw it a few moments ago, like a fine dining menu, if it's a tasting menu and they're bringing you dish after dish, like something about the sequence you know, it's really tightly curated. So something about the progression is like speaking to you. So it's not just um, flavor. And how conscious are you while you're experiencing a meal like that of all of those various inputs? Like, are you sitting there with a notepad next to you? How does it, how does it work? I don't take notes during a meal. Uh, When I first started, I tried to, I would write like a text message on my phone and send it to myself, or I would draft an email or something. And I'd read stories about critics, like going into the bathroom and writing notes in the toilet or whatever. (laughs) And that was all to stay incognito as a restaurant critic? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it just, uh, it's such an interruption of that. If you're trying to experience the thing, I don't know how you can experience it if you're interrupting it by taking notes. But then at the same time, you don't want to forget. You know, I think of the menu itself as my, that's like the real note that I take home. Mm -hmm. Um, And then sometimes I'll add stuff. I'll annotate a menu when I get home with thoughts. Or I'll take a couple of photos and the visual cues will remind me of things. But you're, when you sit down to write as much as anything, you're like recalling the experience. Yeah. It seems hard. (laughs) I mean, it is in a way, it's not like the book, if you're reviewing a book where you've highlighted a passage and you can go back to it, you cannot go back to that meal. There is no reference text. There's no source text. And it is, I would imagine, like it is about the emotional experience of the meal. I mean, there's going to be lots of technical things that come up, but like on some level, the thing that's going to sit with you is what it felt like to experience it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the restaurant is always, it's like telling you a story about itself. And then it's also telling you a story about yourself, you know, and there's a gap between what the restaurant tells you it is and what it is. And I'm just like walking around with a tape measure, like measuring that (laughs) gap, like a pencil behind my ear, you know? (laughs) Yeah. How wide is the gap between, particularly in your columns, like the uh, Tejal Rao that I have read about and the one that you feel like you are? You know what I mean? Like you're a character in your work. You've written about your love life. You wrote recently about having COVID. And it's always, particularly in the column in the magazine, it's always in the context of a recipe. Like there's a story you're telling about a dish or about a ingredient, but there's a lot of you in there. And I wonder why, if I got the tape measure out, like what's the, uh, (laughs) what's the gap between Tejal in the column and Tejal in in real life? Well, it's funny because I think of myself as being so private, but then sometimes in that column, I'll just, you know, like losing when I lost my sense of smell, it was so scary. And it was so scary that I felt like I had to write about it because I hadn't at that point when I filed the piece, I hadn't recovered any of my sense of smell yet, which I have recovered some of it now or a lot of it now. 
but yeah, so I guess there there is that gap between my idea of myself as being this really private person and then my tell-all column. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I imagine there are lots of things that you don't tell, but it is, yes. it, it is interesting. That's what kind of what I was asking about is like what's not in there. But it is interesting that you think of yourself as a very private person and yet yeah. you have a column in which you write about yourself in a very well-read magazine. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's like, so what a ridiculous thing. And I, well, the column, the Oyster column, that was a, you know, compressing a 15 year relationship into like 800 words so obviously a lot (laughs) is not in that column well what i would like to do here is get into that relationship in great depth (laughs) are those columns hard are they hard to write yeah they can be some of them i write really quickly within a couple of hours and then some of them i have to like sit with for a couple of days i think it's like any other kind of writing and I don't know why sometimes I can do them really quickly and sometimes they take a long time. Has it gotten easier as you do it more? Like, do you see the world through the writing in the column now? Like, can you turn that part of your brain off? Can you just like casually go have dinner now? Oh, yeah. I absolutely can turn that, like the critic brain. Restaurant critic brain, like when we finish talking, can you just like go to the fridge and grab a slice of cheese or whatever eat something really gross yeah absolutely (laughs) i can like make myself a peanut butter and green chili and cilantro sandwich and just like eat it (laughs) in front of the fridge and it it doesn't have to fit into like some larger no (laughs) like metaphor it's just sometimes it's just a peanut butter green chili and cilantro sandwich a hundred percent yeah i actually feel like i have to turn on the critical thinking with food because I love it so much. (laughs) You mean like to actually be critical of it? Just to see beyond, because sometimes you're just obliterating yourself with like something delicious Mm -hmm. and there's nothing else, you know, it's just you and your sandwich or whatever. It's just you and this bowl of noodles. And I have to remember, it's not just me and this bowl of noodles. (laughs) Like, I'm going to have to explain this bowl of noodles to other people. <laughs> Can I ask you about another part of your job? Yeah. Your title is California Restaurant Critic. Is that right? Yeah. My understanding is that you had lived in New York for a long time, like 14 years or something like that. Do I have that right? Yeah. Over a decade. I Yeah. Somewhere in that range. And you had worked at the Village Voice. You'd worked at Bloomberg. You'd popped around to gourmet and written for the Atlantic on time out New York, all these places. Like you were, you were writing about food either in New York or from New York for a long time and then took this job essentially covering the state of California. When did you take that job? It was like September, October, 2018, 2018. So you had some real time before COVID hit where you were doing the job. Yeah. When you landed in LA how do you start doing that job? It's like you could do anything, almost. Yeah, and that was oh, that was really paralyzing. I didn't know. I thought, should I be going to really important classic California restaurants the Times has not covered in the past? And should I make sure that's part of our archive? Or do I start with... Um, the first story was really difficult. I, I didn't know what to do, and I ended up making that process part of the first story, which was, I think the first piece I filed from LA was about classic 
restaurants. It was like learning to be in Los Angeles and learning what Los Angeles is through its classic restaurants. And that was my first piece. And that was the, the real process of like falling in love with LA because I didn't know LA very well. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's just like, I'm just curious about what that experience is like. You show up in a place and suddenly you have to be explaining it. Yeah, I felt like I was, I felt like I was learning and every lesson I learned was like public, you know, starting from scratch. And, but, but I kind of grew up this way. Like I grew up moving around a lot and I mean, never being in the position of like reporting on that, obviously, but um, I went to like 19 schools before I graduated high school. Really? And yeah, yeah. That's and, so um, many schools. So it's a lot of schools. And sometimes would be like dropped into places where I didn't speak the language uh, in the middle of the school year. And it's just, I don't want to say it feels normal, but I think, and I also think this is why I like writing and reporting. I like observing things. You know, I, I like being the new guy. <laughs> I'm comfortable being the new guy. Does that make it so you don't feel like a part of places? No, I feel, I feel so at home in LA now. I love it so much. And I really hope I can stay here forever. <laughs> and when I was growing up, I just felt like I belonged to all of those places that we moved to. You know, when we lived in France, like I was not French. I was never French, but I went to French schools. I spoke French and I felt French. You know, I didn't know that like I wasn't. Yeah. How did moving around so much, like growing up in all these different places and 19 different schools, I totally understand how it makes an impact on your ability to land in a new place and not feel daunted by figuring it out. But does your childhood have an impact on like the kind of work you do, like the kind of stories you're drawn to, do you think moving around in that way? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I would love to like visit, you know, universe 8930 where I had a different <laughs> childhood and I'm working as a journalist and like, I'd love to know what kind of stories a different version of me would write, but I don't know. <laughs> and where does the feature writing fit into all of this? Like, maybe we can spend a second talking about the Kit Kat story. Like, where does, I don't know exactly how long that story was, but a four or 5,000 word story about the many, many, many flavors of Kit Kat in Japan. <laughs> like, where does that fall in, in the sort of ecosystem of your work? Well, so technically, that's not something that's part of my job. You know, I, I write the magazine column once a month and then stories for the food desk. And this was, I, I feel like I got really lucky because my editor, Claire Gutierrez, was working on that issue and they were looking for ideas, you know, so I pitched them one that would take me to Japan <laughs> to eat was, chocolate. <laughs> was that the impetus of that story, that it was an excuse to go to Japan and eat chocolate? Well, no, I really, really wanted to write about, it was actually, uh, gosh, there was a different candy that I wanted to write about and I was just having a really hard time getting access. And then when I started researching Kit Kats in Japan, the Nestle Corporation there was, they were really open to answering questions and also to letting me in the factory if I could get there. So I was really excited about that. That story is really, um, my experience of that story is that it's very fun. Oh, thanks. 
did, <laughs> did it feel that way to work on for you? It did feel fun, but it also, so that was my first piece, the first piece I was doing for the times at that length, you know, like a really long reported piece. And I think I was in, I was in Tokyo for a few days and then I went to the, the Mochi factory and a couple other places for a few days. And I was so hyper aware that if I didn't get what I needed in that moment, I wouldn't have another opportunity. You know, I wouldn't be able to walk back over to the factory and like see what I'd made. And so I remember being really anxious and taking way more written notes than I normally would and just kind of panicking the whole time. So no, I didn't. <laughs> that doesn't sound like right. That doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> I did enjoy, like I enjoyed parts of it, but I do remember feeling really stressed that I, or maybe the, the thing I was taping I would lose the audio. I was working with a translator mm -hmm. um, for some of the interviews and she was really incredible, but it also adds a layer of time because every interview that would be an hour is now two, you know? Right. Yeah. That seems pretty intense. I loved working on that piece though. I really loved writing it. What did you love about it? Well, being able to, <laughs> this is, you can tell I'm not someone who like writes long pieces a lot. Like it felt like such an opportunity to write most of what I do is compressed into like 1500 words. And so I almost always know when I'm starting the piece, what it's going to sort of look like, what's mm -hmm. going to be in it. And with a 5,000 word piece, I didn't know how it was going to end until I wrote my way through it. And that was really fun. It's funny that the act of the reporting was so like anxiety inducing, <laughs> yeah. but just like the sort of blank canvas of the piece was like freeing in a way I think there's a lot of people for whom it's the reverse you know what I mean that like oh right not knowing how they're going to stick the landing is like an awful awful experience and the reporting is really fun I mean I definitely have had pieces where that's the experience but in this case I just felt like I could relax when I got to my desk and actually had everything I needed and also Claire Gutierrez is a really amazing editor so it was fun working with her I have more um existential uh how you make decisions and how you write questions but i have a few practical food restaurant critic questions which is like do you still do the anonymity thing are there no photos of you on the internet does no one know what you look like is that your game there are a couple of photos of me um circulating and so i know that I'm not completely anonymous but i do still try i don't i think anonymity is really misunderstood I'm not doing like what Elizabeth does in the Americans and like putting wigs on in my safe house and like getting in and out of disguises and running around. I just make reservations if I'm going somewhere with reservations in a different name. That's it. So that you're not announcing yourself to the restaurant. But do you also protect your like your public identity? Like, do you not want people to know what you look like? Yes. Yeah. I don't post selfies or post pictures of myself anywhere yeah have you ever considered doing it a different way because i feel like there was this movement with restaurant critics at some point in the last couple of years where there was a, a sort of desire to do away with that practice yeah i do remember i remember when adam platt announced right right, right. he was gonna and then a couple of other people too i i think it really it made sense for him because he'd been doing it for so long he just couldn't pretend that he was anonymous anymore. But I think I do manage to like get in and out of dining rooms without people knowing I'm a critic. 
more than half of the time, you know? Yeah. Um, and then a lot of places, honestly, a lot of the places I review don't care. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but still, I would, I would never make a reservation in my own name. Occasionally, a restaurant will get someone making a reservation in my name. It's like, definitely not me. It's someone else. And did you, it was a conscious decision on your part, right? You had the choice of whether or not you wanted to run stars with your reviews. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big conversation. We weren't sure what we wanted to do. And, and I chose no stars. Like I actually felt really strongly about no stars. How come? I think, um, I think stars limit the review in a way, you know, I know editors like them and readers like them because it's like, you know, the number of stars, maybe you don't need to read the review. Those are two pretty like powerful <laughs> constituencies. I know. I know. I just, <laughs> I, I think, I think that the stars w- would limit the stories that I do. Cause I, if I, let's say I'm writing about a taco truck and I consider it like a five star place, you know, four star place, but it doesn't have tables and forks and a ceiling and all those things it would be confusing to make, you know, and so then I would say, oh, I probably shouldn't review it because I'll have to only give it one. I just think, I think stars are bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Editors like them, readers like them, but they're not actually nearly as meaningful as editors and readers think that they are. I just think the the stars create, you know, like think about Michelin stars and other like institutions that have stars. The stars become a shorthand for really specific things. Yeah. Like a three Michelin star restaurant has a certain kind of glassware and a certain service style. And there's no room in the three star space for any other kind of restaurant. And I just think that's the wrong way to think about restaurants. You started at the Times in 2016, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're like coming up on your five-year anniversary? Yeah. And you've got these different roles that you play. You've got this entire state laid out in front of you to cover. Do you have a sense of where you want to go in your work? What you want to do next? I know that I want to um, report more outside of LA because I've been pretty much throughout the pandemic. I've been here at home. I'm in like Northeast LA in Cypress park. And, um, I just know I want to be out and about reporting and interviewing people when I can do that safely mm-hmm. and writing stories that aren't, um, necessarily like LA and San Francisco stories. So that's probably what I'll do, but that's so, I know that's really vague. I think I mean more like, you know, I've asked you about like 400 different times how you choose what to write about. And <laughs> your answer has basically been like, I don't know. That's not a very good question, which is fair. Uh, <laughs> but I think what I'm, I'm trying to figure out is like, do you have some sense? Yeah. Of like how your interests will evolve, you know? I'm not sure, but I am like this past year, I've been thinking a lot about what makes a restaurant good. And that sounds vague, but I mean, like, can a restaurant be good if it doesn't have wheelchair access? And like, can a restaurant be good if the farmers picking the tomatoes are getting sick? 
like how much do we consider when we talk about if a restaurant is good or not? Mm. I'm thinking about that. Like if people are being exploited at every single point possible <laughs> along the way, how good is the restaurant really? Given what restaurants are going through collectively, do you think that restaurants will come back thinking more holistically? How do you anticipate that this time will change this industry that you cover? I mean, my my fear is that it won't. I worry that the pandemic has like illuminated all of these issues and things are just going to keep going the way that they were. That's like the worst case scenario. Well, no, that's not even the worst case scenario, but that's um, a bad, bad case. That's what I worry about, that nothing will change. That people will just kind of like forget. Yeah. You know, like the reporting that came out of the largest meat processing plants in the country all year long, all just everything, everything. I think everyone's really eager to sit at a bar and have a martini and French fries and everyone wants things to go back to the way that they were. And that might make it easy to kind of forget the things we've seen. I hope not. I hope not too. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thanks so much for chatting with me. I don't really get to talk about well, and I think this is also why I'm really inarticulate about some of this stuff is because I, I love like thinking about writing and talking about writing. And it's part of why I love listening to this podcast. Um, it's like something I really, really love. It's just, it's like a little uncomfortable to think about my own writing and talk about my own writing, but it's still fun. I just find it difficult. Why? Because I think a lot of what I do is still intuitive or um or even that I don't completely understand it like with the Kit Kat story I wrote my way through that like from the beginning to the end not knowing where it would go I mean knowing like I'm gonna have a scene in this factory and I'm gonna have a scene with this person I interviewed but not knowing much more than that and somehow like you sit down and you know your brain will work it out if you keep writing I don't know that like I don't know how it works <laughs> I don't know how to I don't know how it works I don't know how to talk about it um but I it's like something I love so much I know we're not supposed to enjoy writing but like I enjoy it so much it's my favorite thing <laughs> do you think that it it's maybe your favorite thing because you don't totally understand how it works. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Like, I feel like there was a slight thing while we were talking where I was kind of like pushing you to tell me how you think about it. And you were a little bit, you were just kind of like, I would prefer not to think about it so much. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just embarrassed that I don't know how to answer some of your questions because I think it makes it seem like I don't care, which I do care. I do care about the stories I choose I do care about, you know, I care about all this stuff, but I don't know how to, I don't know why I make some of the decisions that I make. But we were talking at the beginning 
we were talking earlier about like confidence. Isn't that just like what that confidence is? Being willing to trust your instincts? That's like a really nice way to think about it. Yeah, maybe. I do have that. I know that if I have a few hours, I can write a column. But that's, that feels slightly different than what you're going to write about. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It, it's yeah. like knowing that what you are interested in is interesting is a form of confidence. But then the writing itself is like an act of persuasion, right? Like the writing itself is convincing someone that it's interesting, especially someone who doesn't think it is. Do you feel better about your work now than you than you once did? Has that changed? Um, I usually feel good about a piece after I've filed it. There's like a little window of time where um, I feel good about it. And then I just stop thinking about it and move on to the next thing, you know? I don't, and I don't feel good about the piece forever. It's just like a few minutes. <laughs> what's, what's the like default? If like you get a couple of minutes of feeling good after you file the piece, what's your like? And then I just don't think about it anymore. Yeah. Then I don't feel anything. Then you feel nothing. Yeah. And my, and my brain is like a sieve. <laughs> so all the research I did too is like, is like gone. Like everything is gone. I just forget it all and make space for the next thing. So like we're going to hang up now and then you'll just forget about this? Max who? Yeah. <laughs> Good. I think that's the way it should be. <laughs> uh, you're the best. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Max. This is really cool. Thank you. I so appreciate you. There's a thing that um, happens sometimes with these interviews, which is uh, that they come to an end and I'll say, thanks so much for coming on the show. And the person will say, thanks for having me. And then we'll stop recording. And then they'll say something really interesting. And uh, I don't know if you caught it there, but that's kind of what happened with Tejal, except she kept recording. And so did I. And I'm glad that we did. That was the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper. Our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring the show. And thanks so much to Tejo Rao for uh, not hitting stop on a recorder. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free 
Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.